military scale psyops, psychological operations, which are being conducted now on the American public. So this is influence, corporate and big money influence over our communications in a way that is, you know, it just piles danger upon danger. The consequence is even more insidious that now that you have this process of, of controlling information, in private hands. That is the kind of new McCarthyism that some of us talk about. This is the new face of neo-fascism. My God tells me feed the hungry, feed the homeless. My God tells me welcome the refugees. My God tells me to open my home to my neighbors. That is my God, the God of Abraham. Sisters and brothers, our dear brother Malcolm X said, Freedom. If you're not willing to die for it, take that word out of your mouth. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. Come and see. Come and see this new mound of dark corpses on which we plant the American flag on the body of an eight-month-old, suffocated blue from tear gas, and on the teenager with half his head gone, and on the woman curled fetal who will never be a mother. Come and see as the dead fall in Gaza and as the American flag rises. Come and see the flag waving in Jerusalem, the color guard goose-stepping, the high-heeled standing ovations on occupied land. Come and see this ceremony and bold killing at the new shrine of empire. See this parade of white supremacy, the hideous pageantry of Nazi science, where Lieberman knows every bullet and where every bullet landed. See the murderer Netanyahu standing spewing lies about peace, his tongue revealed as a swarm of maggots that devour his head. See Jared Kushner, an ignoramus in a blue suit, parroting the party line. Like any average SS, he has become death the destroyer of worlds. See Ivanka Trump. See, it is not all about Hitler, but about those who followed and believed the lie and repeated the lie and passed the lie down to their children. Come and see the trained, cowardly IDF snipers high up in canopied bunkers of cement, looking through their scopes, cursing, laughing, and now and then taking turns, shooting across three barbed wire fences, killing children and journalists and paramedics targeting the legs, knees of thousands, creating an army of amputees. Come and see these cowards point across three barbed wire fences and shoot. And so come and see thousands from Gaza, coming from ruins of a thousand bombings, coming from concentration camp rubble, where there is little water, food, or electricity, where there are no jobs and there is no money, where the sick just get sicker, wither, and die where farmers are shot trying to farm, where fishermen are shot trying to fish, where the imprisoned are shot trying to escape. Come and see two million prisoners tired of dying and unafraid of death. 
Come and see another dark people mourning than fighting back and choosing their land of dates, figs, pomegranates, and oranges. Come and see two million prisoners coming home to Haifa, Yaffa, Acre, Safad, Ramleh, Lid, El Mejdel, Askeler, Beersheba, Bisan, and Jerusalem. Come and see two million prisoners returning, 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 returning home. On today's show, more from a tremendous week here in D.C., marked by demonstrations denouncing that massacre of peaceful protesters in Gaza and the launch of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. And it's the third show of the month, our time to talk about fascism on our segment, The F Word. Jill Stein and Ajamu Baraka are my special guests for this month. You don't want to miss our conversation about how fundamental freedoms of speech and basics of democracy in the United States are being eroded. That's all coming up later in this show, but first this week's headlines. This week, dozens of protesters rallied, took to the streets, and were arrested at the U.S. Capitol on May 14th for the launch of the Poor People's Campaign, a national effort led by the Reverend William Barber and the Reverend Liz Theo Harris. With simultaneous actions at 37 state capitals, the campaign is demanding a change in what it calls a distorted moral narrative that is perpetuating systemic racism, poverty, ecological devastation, the war economy, and militarism. Barbara cited biased media coverage as a contributor to this false narrative. We have come to put our mouths and our bodies on the line. We've come to put a face on the facts. We've come to put forward the people who are hurt by the policy violence and the attention violence because you can't change the narrative until you change the narrator. And for six weeks, we have three goals. Number one, to launch this movement. and to break through the narrative. Because right now you can look at the news all week, you can look at C-SPAN all week, and never hear a word about the 140 million poor people in this country. And never hear a word about systemic racism, and ecological devastation, and imperialism, and the military-industrial complex. That narrative has to change. Muslim activist Linda Sarsour linked the demands of the Poor People's Campaign to the demand for justice for Palestinians massacred this week by Israeli Defense Forces. I come here today to stand with you for justice. But I ask you as a heartbroken woman for you to stand for justice for the Palestinian people and the people of Gaza who are being killed with your taxpayer dollars. Sisters and brothers, this fight that we're having is interconnected. We are global citizens and we are all the creations of God regardless of what side of the world we live on. And when more dollars are going to kill people across the world than they are going to schools in Chicago or to hospitals or to healthcare, that's a problem. Sisters and brothers, it's not okay for their people in our country to die without health care on our watch. It's not okay for us to be separating mothers and
and their children on the border. It's not okay, sisters and brothers, that every day a young black man or woman is killed at the hands of law enforcement in these United States of America. Our silence is complicity in these crimes. Now, the same day that the Poor People's Campaign launched, activists gathered for an emergency vigil in front of the White House in response to more than 60 unarmed Palestinian protesters being killed and more than 2,700 wounded in Gaza by Israeli snipers on Monday as the U.S. celebrated the widely condemned move of its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Phyllis Bennis, an analyst for the Institute for Policy Studies, addressed the crowd. The people of Gaza, who are taking this astonishing step of walking into a hail of bullets that they knew was coming, the Israelis say, well, we told them, like that makes it okay. We told them we would use live ammunition to anyone who faced the fence, and that makes it okay to slaughter civilian children and women and men and old people and journalists because they're approaching the fence of their prison that you have imprisoned them with. And this is not only about Israel. This is about this administration. This is about Congress. This is about the legacy of our country that has enabled Israeli occupation, Israeli apartheid, Israeli violations of human rights for all of these years. $3.8 billion a year of our tax money goes directly to the Israeli military. And we know the Israeli military is responsible for implementing the plans of Bibi Netanyahu and his cohorts. These are the crimes against humanity that belong in Geneva at the International Criminal Court. Netanyahu is a war criminal and he belongs on trial. But not only Netanyahu, John Bolton, who has enabled it, Mike Pompeo, and Donald Trump. Since March 30th, more than 100 Palestinians have been killed and more than 6,000 wounded, many crippled for life as the IDF indiscriminately shot at peaceful protesters in the Great March of Return. Now, for more on the crisis in Gaza and other international news, I'm welcoming back on the grounds geopolitical analyst, the author and historian, Professor Gerald Horn. And Gerald, I want to first ask you about the legal dimensions of this latest massacre in Gaza and what more and more people are recognizing as the slow genocide there as two million people live in uninhabitable conditions. Some are calling for an independent investigation or for charges to be brought before the International Criminal Court. But given the track record of these investigations and the court, which only seems to be interested in African dictators, are these avenues the way forward? What are the legal options? And and what is the fallout beyond our borders from these cold-blooded murders this week? Well, first of all, with regard to the legal point, I think that there are tools in our toolkit that we have yet to use. Recall some years ago when the Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet was detained in London for weeks because of a warrant issued to him 
by a Spanish magistrate charging him with human rights violations in South America. He was almost extradited to Spain to stand trial. Since that episode, you may know that U.S. President George W. Bush, Henry Kissinger, and other U.S. leaders oftentimes check with their lawyers before they take trips to various foreign countries. I think that a similar strategy should be used against the Israeli leadership, particularly Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Recall, for example, that he has tried to effectuate a kind of alliance with India based upon what is perceived to be a mutual hostility to certain nations that are predominantly Muslim populations. India has a progressive legal community, and it would be wise for U.S. lawyers to hook up with lawyers to try to effectuate that kind of Pinochet-like strategy against Mr. Netanyahu. And by the way, note that just in the Financial Times in the last week or so, a writer suggested that the United States and Israel be expelled from the United Nations because of what they're doing in Palestine. I think that we may be in on the beginnings of an international strategy to not only isolate Israel, but also its major international backer, which happens to be the United States of America. And what other fallout has there been internationally because of these massacres this week? Well, South Africa has recalled its ambassador to Israel in protest against the outrage in Gaza. Recall that South Africa has one of the largest Jewish communities in the Atlantic world and a major hero of the anti-apartheid struggle, Joe Slovo, who was head of the armed wing of the African National Congress during its heyday in the early 1990s, was in fact of Jewish descent, as well as the well-known Israeli spokesman, Abba Ibn, who was born in South Africa. South Africa is coming under enormous pressure because of this land reform that they're trying to cook up. Just this past week in Washington, you had leaders of the South African ultra-right who were meeting with uh, John Bolton, the Trump national security advisor, and appearing on Tucker Carlson's news show on Fox News. So I don't think South Africa is in any mood to compromise with the right wing, be it in Israel or in the United States. Now, with regard to Nigeria, it was reported that a Nigerian delegate attended a reception in Jerusalem held right before the opening of the new embassy. This reception was held by the United States mission there. But Abuja denied that stridently, and I, I hope that the denial was accurate, because it seemed to me that would be considered a thumb in the eye to Nigeria's already restive Muslim population. Also, since we last spoke, Trump went ahead, as expected, and removed the United States from the Iran nuclear deal. And on yesterday, Thursday, May 17th, six Democrats joined with most Republicans in confirming a torturer, Gina Haspel, to head the CIA. Peace activists are saying that Trump now has in place a complete war cabinet. So I'm wondering how these decisions are reverberating internationally. Well, first of all, it's really upsetting the European Union, which, by the way, also may be facing tariffs from the Trump regime within a few weeks. Note that Chancellor Merkel of Germany has met twice this month, including on May 18th with Vladimir Putin in Russia. Obviously, the Iran deal is high on their agenda. Both would like to see that deal preserved. 
But as well, there are massive energy deals being cooked up by Berlin and Moscow. The sticking point, as you know, with regard to Berlin and Moscow is the Crimea issue, that is to say, the Russian annexation of Crimea from Ukraine a few years ago. But even that may be withering as an issue, particularly in light of the fact that Russia has just completed the construction of a bridge linking Crimea to the Russian mainland, which will then lead to even closer ties between Crimea and Russia. Now, Merkel has been rather concerned about the Iran nuclear deal to which Germany is a signatory and Mr. Trump seeking to pull out. But Germany is not a hawk on this matter. I think it's because of all of the automobile plants, German automobile plants that are in the United States and the export of Volkswagens and BMWs and Mercedes and other uh, German vehicles to the United States. And the Germans are quite concerned that Mr. Trump will retaliate if uh, Berlin takes a hawkish line towards uh, Mr. Trump and his pulling out of the uh, Iranian a nuclear deal. But keep in mind that the European Union does not follow the United States on sanctions against Cuba. So there's little reason for the European Union to follow the United States with regard to sanction with regard to Iran. I think that we may be in the at the beginning stage, once again, of a massive rift in what has been called the transatlantic alliance. And I think that this will cause further isolation of Washington. I, I must say, I was also surprised this week that South Korea uh, went along with these provocative military exercises uh, just when the North and South seemed to be on the verge of an historic reconciliation. What do you think was behind this? Well, keep in mind that the right wing is very strong in South Korea. There's a lot of opposition to any sort of entente with the North. Keep in mind as well that South Korea is the kind of client state of the United States of America despite the strength of uh, Lucky Gold Star and Hyundai and Samsung. And that particular maneuver, that is to say, keeping this deal, military deal going with the United States in terms of these military uh, maneuvers and military games, it really doesn't surprise me, given those factors I've just mentioned. Okay. Well, finally, in this hemisphere, elections in Venezuela are this Sunday, May 20th, and there are solidarity events here in D.C. and around the world to support the Venezuelan people against the U.S. hegemony and U.S. imperialist aggression. So what's your take on this year's elections there? It's, it's going to be very difficult. Obviously, Venezuela is under the gun. It's being subjected to destabilization. The good news, however, is that with these impending sanctions against Iran, the price of a barrel of oil may go up to 80 or $90 a barrel, and that will be money pouring into the coffers of Caracas, which will help it to continue its social programs, its educational programs, and healthcare programs. The only question is those dollars won't be trickling into Caracas before Sunday when the elections take place. I've been joined by our geopolitical analyst, Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. Now, in climate and environmental justice news, journalists, politicians, experts, and advocates for public health are demanding that the Trump administration release a major federal water contamination study. According to emails obtained by the Union of Concerned Scientists and reported on by Politico, the study shows that these chemicals, PFOA and PFOS, 
are dangerous to human health at far lower levels than previously known or disclosed by the EPA and have contaminated water supplies near military bases, chemical plants, and other sites from New York to Michigan to Virginia. And finally, in culture and media, the Senate passed legislation this week to reverse the FCC decision gutting net neutrality. Now the measure goes to the House of Representatives. Also, the Black Panther blockbuster movie is now available on video and Blu-ray. And Baltimore-based Black Classic Press is celebrating its 40th anniversary this weekend, May 18th through May 20th, with a gala, reception, open house, panels, and more. Congratulations to Paul Coates and his team for this important milestone. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, Jill Stein and Ajamu Baraka talk about how neoliberalism is morphing into neo-fascism in the U.S. Stay with us. صباح الخير يا ولاد عمومنا تفضلوا شرفونا شو بتحب مضيفكم دم عربي ولا دموع من عيوننا بعتقد هيك تأملوا نستقبل من هيك تعقدوا لما تدركموا على غلطة من هيك لبسنا الكوفيه البيضة والسودة صاروا كلاب الزمان يلبسوها كموضة مهما تفننوا فيها مهما غيروا بلونة كوفية عربية بتضل عربية حطتنا بدنياه ثقافتنا بدنياه كرامتنا بدنياه كل شي إلنا بدنياه ما راح نسكت لن نسمح لن ليك ليك لا بقلن يسرقوا شغلي مش إلهن ما خاصن فيه بلتبس لبس هالأرض يكفيهن الشمعانين عالقدس قدس عرفوا كيف كونوا ببشر جينا نذكرن مين إحنا وغصب عن أبوهم هاي حطتنا من هيك لبسنا الكوفي لأنا وطنية الكوفي كوفي عربي من هيك لبسنا الكوفي هويتنا الأساسية الكوفي كوفي عربي يلا علي الكوفي علولي هالكوفي الكوفي كوفي عربي علوه هلا بلاد الشام كوفي عربي بدل عربي ما في بعد مثل الشعب العربي فرجوني أي أمي بالدنيا أكثر مؤثرة الصورة واضحة نحنا محد الحضارة تاريخنا وتراثنا الشاهد على وجودنا من هيك لبست الطوب الفلسطيني من حفا جنين جبل النار إلى الله خلينا نشوف الكوفية البيضة والحمرة خلينا نعليها لفوق بالسماء أنا هشاه ضيق العرب الثاني بخص غزت الثاني بهز هالكلي ماتي حرب سجل أنا شادي منصور والحطة هويتي من يوم ما خلقت سيدي والشعب مسؤوليتي لكن أتربيت بين الغرب وبين الشرب بين لغتين بين بين بخيل بين فقير شفت الحياة من الشقتين سنة مثل الكوفية كيف ملبستوني وين ما شلحتوني بدلني عاوصولي فلسطينية من هيك لبسنا الكوفية لأنا وطنية الكوفية كوفية عربي من هيك لبسنا الكوفية هويتنا الأساسية الكوفية كوفية عربي يلا علي الكوفية علولي هالكوفية الكوفية كوفية عربي علوه هلا بلاد الشام كوفية عربي Arabi, <laughs> 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 
y'all think it's a trend, a fashion statement. Disgustingly, I spit on the pavement. It's basic. Y'all know I bang for my flag. My bandana ain't no rag. The kofia ain't no scarf. It's a part of the movement. The symbolism is resistance. No coincidence that you can see the RBG in it. Cable meet the bandana. Ain't it beautiful? I say it in Spanish. It's solidarity. The feelings is mutual. Meanwhile, hot, that's M1 in Arabic. I'm pro Palestinian. Does that make me a terrorist? You can catch me in Gaza, in Haifa or Ramallah, but I'm still just Mutulu Olubala. So when I rap with Shajah, we rhyme with our middle fingers up to the Zionists, cause we don't give a f. Oh, it's justice. So tie that thing around your head and ride. Wave it in the air and let me know what side you want. Uhuru. Yeah. The Kofia is Arab. Yeah. It's M1. In solidarity, feel me, Shaja. Do it. From the ghetto to Gaza. I keep it RBG up. Yeah. Bang for my flag. Welcome back to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and it's the third show of the month, so it's our time for the F word, our segment on fascism. On this segment, we talk about classic fascism when the relationship between the state and corporation becomes indiscernible. We also talk about state violence and repression, particularly against people of color and in low-income communities here in the United States and abroad. With me this month are two guests, Jill Stein and Ajamu Baraka, nominees for U.S. President and Vice President, respectively, for the Green Party USA. Stein is also a mother, an organizer, physician, and pioneering environmental health advocate. And Baraka is also a veteran human rights activist who is the national organizer for the Black Alliance for Peace. Well, I should say that this segment, in a sense, is a follow-up to the conversation I had with Jill last year in February, before you both spoke here in D.C. at the program Next Steps for Independent Politics, Stopping Neo-Fascism and Resisting Neoliberalism. And since then, your campaign has been targeted by mainstream Democrats as part of the Russiagate narrative, the alleged interference by Russians in the 2016 election. Because so many people, 100,000, I think, in Wisconsin voted for you. And Hillary lost the state by far less than that number of votes, right? And then also linked to this narrative, your critics have pointed out your appearances on RT, which is funded by Russia. And of course, your attendance at an anniversary of the network in Moscow, Jill. So I want to first let both of you react to this attack. And it kind of still is out there. So it's not too late to kind of talk about it. First, both of you have a chance to talk about this attack and the implications for independent politics and free speech. You can go first, Jill. Okay, yeah, and thanks so much for having this discussion because it needs to be had in a very big way that Russiagate has so much overreach and abuse baked into it that it's really become a vehicle for, for censorship, for the campaign to suppress political opposition, and for warmongering. And the abuses of the Russiagate investigation really reflect this disease, this confluence of political repression and war. You know, there's the war abroad and there's the attack on democracy at home, and then lots in between. It is the state of politics, of justice, of discourse, the assault on the media and our civil liberties. Russiagate is both a reflection of this 
problem, and it also furthers the, the problem. It is the disease itself. And it's really important to stand up and push back because these three things, that is censorship, political repression, and warmongering, are really a threat to our survival and to our democracy. The smear campaign really has been with us ever since uh, Ajamu and I were nominated. In fact, I had been to this conference in Russia. It was a 10-year anniversary conference held by RT that looked at the role of media and international relations. It was an interesting conference. I went for the conference. There just happened to be a dinner where I was seated at the head table where Putin briefly sat. You know, no words exchanged, but he sat there, you know, so that's like this huge, you know, crime, crime by association, you know, guilt by association. At any rate, that was not an issue. That happened back in December of 2015. Nobody gave a hoot, and it was all public. We were very clear about funding it ourselves, about what our agenda was at my attendance in that meeting. It was about diplomacy and dialogue in place of warmongering and brinksmanship. You know, this was really the theme of our campaign. No different in my tour in Russia and in Paris at the Climate Accords, where we met with a whole bunch of activists and organizers and government leaders. So, uh, you know, bottom line is that this is a smear campaign. It continues. We've been formally investigated by the Senate Intelligence Committee, turned over all relevant documents that really have zero, zero information about Russia you know, colluding with us or planning some interference. Our campaign has been from the get-go completely above board and beyond reproach and not participating in quid pro quo deals, not with foreign oligarchs and not with domestic oligarchs. We hold our head high not only for being beyond corruption and uh, alleged collusion, but in really standing up not only for election, real election integrity, and that means against domestic interference, which is well-documented, voter suppression, the influence of big media that gave $6 billion in free airtime to Donald Trump. You know, it makes the accusations against the Russian Internet Research Agency, you know, just just look minute and insignificant compared to real uh, domestic interference. So we hold our head, heads high, and we call this a smear campaign because we truly threaten the political establishment, and that's a good thing. Okay. Ajamu, I wanted to give you a chance to address the same, the same issue, but if you could also emphasize the whole issue around warmongering, because I know that you work so much with the Black Alliance for Peace. Yeah, I, it, I think that what we are seeing today is a very dangerous situation. I think that the attacks on our campaign, the attacks on the Green Party, is really just a symptom of a much uh, mm-hmm. deeper malady that's impacting the state of democracy uh, in this country. What we've seen is, in many ways, a united ruling class that has concluded that the rule of law and democratic rights have now become impediments for their continued dominance. Uh, and therefore, they are committed to contracting the space for democratic participation. And in doing that, a uh, main target is, in fact, any uh, effort uh, beyond the 
uh, to ruling class duopoly. So, you know, the Green Party is, is right in the, in the crosshairs of this attempt to try to narrow the scope of, of democratic choice. So, you know, one way you do that is to engage in, in character assassination, political assassination. You suggest that the campaign that we ran was a campaign that, in fact, was part of a broader foreign conspiracy, one that included, that was being operated by uh, and in the interest of the Russians. Uh, and therefore, you, you, you paint a picture uh, in which this campaign has no credibility because it is sourced uh, and inspired foreign entities. And therefore, you cast a suspicion on any third-party attempt as being something that is not only a threat to the democratic process in the U.S., but also a threat in terms of it being under the control of foreign forces. So... This is not surprising. Uh, we know that this attack will continue against any democratic force, uh, as Jill indicated in her response. Uh, we know also, too, that part of the new agenda, not really new agenda, but part of the focus uh, today by the ruling elements is the, uh, the use of war. Uh, and to be able to uh, execute their policies, they have to build support among the population. And so any party... Uh, any campaign, like our campaign, that uh, is opposed to war, that is pushing the concept of peace, that says that these uh, issues that we see in the world today can be solved through diplomatic means, uh, that there could be international cooperation, that we don't need to have a, a global arms race, uh, then we become we become real threats. So we recognize the the moment, and I think that. These kinds of conversations that we are having with the people of the U.S. are helping people to understand what is really happening and to separate themselves, uh, our interests, the interests of the people, from the interests of the 1%. These kind of conversations are vitally uh, important. Well, you know, I guess people listening, they may be wondering what this conversation has to do with, like, fascism or state and uh, the state and corporations and really corporate media is the biggest link I have. You know, I wanted to drill down a little bit further into the free speech issue. And then I realized that it was really kind of linked, you know, and I couldn't separate it from the whole issue of democracy. I think that the connection to the issue of fascism is quite clear to me. And that is that what we see today is really an expression of the new kind of reality that's been constructed in this new neoliberal world. That is, when, you know, in the past, we were always looking out for the moves by the state to constrain and constrict speech uh, and democratic participation, to deny access to information and critical analysis. But in the present neoliberal period, that role is the role that doesn't have to be taken up by the state directly. Now that can be taken up by private corporations. And what I'm referring to is the fact that, you know, with the emergence of these gigantic telecommunications corporations that have hooked us on the social media platforms, uh, Twitter and uh, Facebook and, and, and all and YouTube that have control now over how we get access to information through uh, Google and the other companies. Now they are able to then decide for the people what kind of information uh, people are going to have access to. 
uh, what constitutes legitimate uh, news. And so that process of constricting and constraining access to information has now been privatized. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the government can claim that it has no direct uh, influence on the process, but the impact, the consequence is even more insidious that now that you have this this process of, of controlling information in private hands. That is the kind of new McCarthyism that some of us talk about. This is the the new face of neo-fascism. It is neo-fascism that is an expression of the kind of neoliberalism that you can't really make a distinction between the two. And, you know, just recently, I think it was last week, Facebook announced that it was going to have some type of new program to tell people what was basically good news as opposed to fake news or news that that is is not recommended or something like that. So go ahead, go ahead, Jill. Yeah, it's pretty scary. And what Ajamu is speaking to, you know, just to add to that, we've seen corporations and big money control our you know, our conventional media, you know, the, the legacy media. We've seen that for a while and then have a lot of influence over TV as well as, you know, the big stations like, like you know, ABC, CBS, CNN, MSNBC, you know, and Fox. They're really controlled by their big advertisers. Um, so you've got incredible corporate control over our communications in many mediums, and now you have big corporations also basically controlling our communications through through the Internet and through social media. And not only are they controlling our communications, but they're also spying on us and taking our private information while they're at it, and then using that private information in in order to micro-target us and to sell that to the likes of Cambridge Analytica, which happens to be funded by Robert Mercer, the right-wing you know, Wall Street gambler, big supporter of right-wing extremism, including Breitbart News and the like. So they're selling our information as well to organizations like Cambridge Analytica that can then micro-target us based on what they know about us, with disinformation campaigns to conduct massive propaganda. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this is sort of military-scale psyops, psychological operations, which are being conducted now on the American public. So this is kind of, you know, this is influence, uh, corporate and uh, big money influence over our communications uh, in a way that is, you know, it just piles danger upon danger. And that's, you know, that's just one of our basic civil liberties and civil rights that are under attack. It's not only censorship of the media and, you know, consolidation of the media that makes it easier to control and to censor, but then it's the likes of controlling the algorithms by which information gets shared and that suppresses all you know, progressives and anti-war sites have been kind of buried now in our Facebook and, you know, Internet and Google searches and so on. That is being compromised at the same time that our rights of protest are also under attack. So that when Black Lives Matter protests uh, were out in the street and 
uh, occupying the highways, draconian laws have been passed in some states against highway demonstrations and against blocking traffic. And the same is true like uh, regarding uh, protests against fossil fuels and the indigenous protest at Standing Rock. That has now given way to these new draconian bills, these fossil fuel infrastructure protection bills that can throw at you a $100,000 fine and 20 years in jail if you use some of the typical techniques like spray painting, so-called vandalism, even just spray painting construction equipment, you can get 20 years in jail and a $100,000 fine. So this is a really dangerous assault on our democracy, on our civil liberties, and that includes, of course, the privacy invasions that you know, that uh, right. we referred to earlier. So it's really important that we call this what it is, which is an assault on democracy, which is the flip side of an empire with endless war, it has to assault freedom of speech at home in order to maintain that war machine. So really important that we connect the dots here and we mobilize together to stand up for uh, peace and democracy. We're going to go to a break right now. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation with Jill Stein and Ajamu Baraka. Stay with us.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivera, and I'm continuing my conversation with Jill Stein and Ajamu Baraka. And before the break, Jill, I just want you to talk to people a little bit about the debate process and why you weren't included on the debates that we could see on national television. When I asked the question originally, I guess I, I kind of knew the answer that you really hadn't been invited very often on corporate media. We were invited very few times on corporate media, just so we don't skip that entirely. And, for example, we did a town hall meeting with CNN, which had, you know, a lot of, uh, got a lot of attention. Um, I was invited a few times onto RT. You know, I would estimate, you know, one or two dozen, something like that. But so what? <laughs> what can I say? If, if we had corporate media or if we had media that covered really the breadth of, of political options, then candidates like us wouldn't have to appear on foreign media. But BBC is foreign media, and they have their point of view, as does you know, Al Jazeera and so on. And I think it's wrong for us to censor foreign points of view. I think the American public are wise enough to sort through that kind of thing. We wouldn't hear from people like Ed Schultz or other principled commentators who were thrown out of MSNBC because they either wanted to cover Bernie Sanders or at another point, you know, if they discussed opposition to the Iraq war or journalists like Chris Hedges, you know, the war correspondent for the New York Times, who lost his position with the New York Times for telling the truth in the run-up to the war. So it's really important that we be able uh, to hear that and sort through the, you know, various kinds of information that's put out there. Debates, the American people deserve to know who their choices are. We have a right to vote, and we have a right to know who we can vote for. In the last election, over 75% of Americans were screaming for open debates so that they could see who their choices were besides the two most unpopular, untrusted candidates, that is Clinton and Trump, uh, in really uh, modern history. So we should have debates. We should have a People's Debate Commission that allows uh, the American public to be fully informed about the full spectrum of their choices. But I, as I understand it, the League of Women Voters that used to be in charge of the debates, they stopped that process. And then now some new entities, uh, very, very much connected with the two parties is in charge of the debates, right? Exactly. It's a private corporation. Uh, the Commission on Presidential Debates is really a private corporation run by the Democratic and Republican parties that uh, purposefully keep uh, other choices out and you know that should just be ended we deserve a real debate commission that informs voters and doesn't i mean they do more than restrict your choices they also control what press have access they also control the audience in order to create this you know this dog and pony show where people think that there is support for cutting taxes for billionaires and for uh, uh, perpetrating endless wars. You know, these are the same kinds of things that get cheered in our presidential debates because real people are not allowed to be at the debates. So they are propaganda 
staged propaganda events in and of themselves. And on all those counts, uh, this is a very important part of the, you know, that interferes with our elections. You know, the whole Russiagate thing is supposed to be about interference in our elections. So we're calling for an emergency commission for election protection and voting justice that would address each of these points. And you're absolutely right, Esther, the charade that presidential debates have become is also a critical part of having elections that are not interfered with by the oligarchy and that are really responsive to the needs and the, uh, our democratic rights. Ajamu, I wanted to ask you about how what we're discussing relates to your work with Black Alliance for Peace, because it's been really clear to me, especially in this these recent days looking at the massacre occurring in Gaza, that the people really aren't getting the news around not only U.S. involvement in these types of uh, atrocities really around the world, but they aren't getting information about how much our tax base is being used for these wars and interventions, you know, how much the so-called intelligence agencies are involved. So, and, and because we aren't getting that information, it seems like anyone who speaks out is somehow uh, unpatriotic or they don't get the type of airing that other voices get in media. No, they don't. And what we have to recognize is that we are, in fact, involved in an information war. Um, and that, but it's a one-sided war because you have information now that uh, is controlled by a very small number of private corporations that are able to bring their perspective to the vast numbers of the American people and pitch that as objective news. You have that reality and what we talked about earlier with the uh, with the control of the of social media or the tightening control of social media. And you see that the kinds of voices that uh, and perspectives that are given uh, airtime are those voices and perspectives uh, that represent the, the interests of the other uh, 1%, the interests of the oligarchy. And those interests right now are centered on their strategies for how they are able, how they are attempting to try to maintain their dominance in a world in which their control is slipping quite dramatically. So for them, again, issues of, of democracy become centered, uh, issues of how to use uh, the power of the state to, uh, to repress opposition is, is fundamental. Uh, so, in doing that, they have to also simultaneously still tend to public opinion. So they are attempted to shape pers- perspectives by shaping uh, the news. This is part of the new uh, expressions of fascism, this corporate state uh, cooperation. And so, you know, when it comes to the issue of war, we see that this is an issue in which uh, the corporations and the uh, state on the same page, that the interest of the military-industrial conflict is such that it is quite profitable to push the war agenda. And so these conflicts that are leading toward uh, potential conflict are the ones that are exposed to the American people. They whip up uh, uh, this war fever, and we see that they have been quite effective in doing that. We go from one crisis to another 
always, though, these crises are framed in such a way to generate support for intervention. But you can see the, the contradiction between the concern that the U.S. government pretended to have when it came to the gassing of Syrians uh, and the mood toward intervening directly in order to save Arab life, supposedly, versus the slaughter that we have been witnessing on the fence between Gaza uh, and so-called Israel. Where is the intervention there to protect uh, human life? So we, we see that, you know, as long as information and the shaping of perceptions remains with the 1%, then the real likelihood of conflict and even nuclear war is really more pronounced today than perhaps ever in the history of this country since the, the end of the Second World War. I am rapidly running out of time. I've been speaking with Jill Stein and Ajamu Baraka, nominees for U.S. President and Vice President, respectively, of the Green Party USA in 2016. Stein is also a mother, organizer, physician, and pioneering environmental health advocate. And Baraka is also a veteran human rights activist who is national organizer for the organization he just mentioned, the Black Alliance for Peace. Thank you so much to both of you for joining me today. Our pleasure. Thank you. And with that reminder about the importance of independent media, that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guests again, Gerald Horn, Jill Stein, and Ajamu Baraka. And also thanks to Lydia Curtis for reporting at the Poor People's Campaign. The music we played this hour included Shadia Mansour, El Kofia Arabia, featuring M1 of Dead Press, and also the Ether Orchestra, Fakir Adelam Way. And excuse my pronunciation if it's not quite right. This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org. Voices of resistance from the nation's capital. You can reach us and listen to complete versions of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Esther Averam. Remember, I'll be at the Poetry and Politics Fundraiser at Busboys and Poets this Wednesday, May 23rd. Until next week. Keep raising your voice. Peace. Sweet time. I'll give it right back to you. Oh, what is this? Doing?